morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day and all of that stuff, and a special welcome to the Midlers, grade three and five. So glad you're here uh, this morning. And again, if you didn't get a booklet, there's some out on the info table. I think there's some extra as well. So adults, if you're anticipating this might be a little bit boring, you can feel free to get a booklet for yourself as well. No judgment. Um, Kids and adults, I guess, as well, but mostly middlers. I want to tell you a story. It's important to note right off the bat, this isn't a a story that I would suggest you do. Grade one, I was really into this guy. (laughs) This is a fairly new movie. Anyone know who this is? E.T., yes. And E.T. came out, and me and my friends were really into E.T., I didn't have a lot of toys as a kid. My family didn't have a ton of money, so we didn't really have toys other than things we would make. And so there was a kid at school, grade one, Kelly. He had this exact E.T. doll, plastic, movable arms. I don't think it did much other than that, but it was pretty amazing to have your own E.T. at home. And so I wanted E.T. I wanted my own E.T. I had no way of buying an E.T., and my parents weren't going to get me one. And so I thought about it for a while. And it was a Friday afternoon, and I decided I would have E.T. I had a lunchbox that flipped open, and on the top, it was plastic about this big, and on the top you put your thermos, had a little clasp, and then in the bottom there was an open section that was custom fit for an E.T. just to slide right in there. And so I took Kelly's E.T. and I put him in my lunchbox and I closed up the lunchbox and I put it back on the shelf just like any other Friday. And all afternoon, my heart was beating in my chest. I was worried that somehow Miss Graff would say that it was time to clean the lunchboxes or that we were going to do some sort of like search for E.T. And we, we did that, but nobody found it in my lunchbox. And so I went home after school, with a stolen E.T. And that Friday, we left for Saskatoon to go and see my mom's relatives, and I wanted to bring E.T. with me. And so I wrapped E.T. up in my suitcase, wrapped him in layers of underwear and pants and T-shirts, and hid him in my suitcase. And we got to Saskatoon, and all throughout the weekend, I would remember I had an E.T. And so I'd go down to the basement guest room, I'd open up my suitcase and unwrap the E.T. and I would hold his little body in my arms (laughs) and stroke his plastic face. I had an E.T. but I couldn't let anyone know that I had an E.T. and so it was a weird thing where I was excited to have a new toy, I was really afraid of getting caught and I couldn't fully enjoy it because it wasn't mine and so all weekend I felt this mixture of excited and sick. So I got home on that Sunday, and we lived on an acreage, and uh, underneath the shop, which was just across from our house, underneath the shop, my dad had recently shown me that under the building, there was a big, deep hole that was filled with water, and he told me, never go in there. Okay, it's very dark, you can't see, and it was the freakiest place I knew of in the whole world. This deep, 
dark pit. He said, never go in there. And so I knew what I was going to do with E.T. I had to get rid of him. I felt guilty. But I didn't want to let anyone know. I didn't want to get caught. So I threw E.T. with a splash into the dark pit under the shop. And I thought, ah, that'll be better. I buried E.T., He sunk to the bottom of the pit. Nobody will ever find him, and I'll feel better. Do you think I felt better? No. All summer, I'm thinking about E.T., and I'm thinking about Kelly. I buried E.T., but he's still with me somehow. I haven't gotten rid of E.T., and so I remember grade two, seeing Kelly. How I had this capacity, I don't know, but I said, Kelly, did you ever find your E.T.? I wanted to throw him off my trail with the appearance of being a caring friend that I still remembered E.T., that I I cared about the whereabouts of E.T. And so I'd already buried E.T. Now I was burying E.T. with my own goodness and the appearance of friendship. Now, Kelly moved. I never got to admit to him that I stole his E.T. If... If I met Kelly, I would certainly apologize and say this was not right. If Kelly had kids, I would buy him something comparable, probably like an Elsa doll for every kid. Elsa's the new E.T., right? No. Okay, I'm confused. But I would get him something to, to try and make it right. And really the question that I was struggling with with the E.T. was what do I do with my sin. And my answer was, bury it. Next slide. A little bit older. This is Pelagius. And Pelagius was a 5th century uh, British Roman Christian theologian who taught that all evil was the result of humans making bad choices. That's a simplification, but that more or less that's what he thought. And these choices then, and and therefore evil, could be removed or undone by making good choices. And so what was needed was gaining education, practicing virtue, self-control. Humans could reach perfection through their own efforts. And Pelagian's view of Christianity was really attractive to a certain kind of people. There was a group that coalesced around Pelagius, and these were believers from the elite strata of Roman society. And and Pelagius appealed to those who were accustomed to power, status, privilege. Those who, who had been around Christianity, maybe were second, third, fourth, fifth generation Christian family. They had inherited this. Uh, in their family, but they found the the doctrine of original sin as insulting. The idea that Adam's sin has somehow corrupted the whole world, and a doctrine of sin seemed unsophisticated for such modern times as these. And so, the Pelagians they didn't like that. They were attracted to um, this idea that you could get rid of sin and evil by. Well, first of all, it was sin and evil was out in the pagan society. And so, therefore, the way you dealt with it was improving through uh, societal, social inventions, social improvements. And Pelagians became really early virtue signalers, where they would show their virtue that they were into improving their world. And so, to summarize Pelagianism, 
original sin embarrassing. Any kind of talk or discussion of sin, not sophisticated, not really relevant to now. Let's talk about social improvement. Now, in contrast to Pelagius was this guy. This was a North African bishop named Augustine who saw a more, we could say, nuanced way of seeing humanity. And that was that beneath our decisions, our choices to do right, often lay very complicated, subterranean, discordant desires. Augustine saw humans trapped in, in what he said was like a permanent state of dislocation. And that dislocation came from a rupturing of relationship with God, a rupturing of relationship with the earth, a ruptured relationship with one another. And so if Pelagius was right about sin, then we can all, under our own steam, our own effort, adjust our behavior and therefore make things right. But Augustine was saying, no, our desires are already so messed up and disordered. And, and that's led to a rupture in relationship. And so therefore, that rupture needs to be addressed and reconciled. He says, we actually have to address sin, which probably is your favorite topic, I'm guessing. Midlers, I got a sweet new slide. I always do this. Yes. We do a lot of special effects when you're not here. Now, this, this may be, you may feel like an antiquated word, or maybe one you, you don't really like talking about, or maybe one you've heard about. I was talking to uh, a, a, a friend who's a generation above me, and he was telling me about the generation above him, his grandpa, who said, when, when he went to church every Sunday, he said, one thing was for certain, you'd leave feeling worse than when you came. And that was, that was his definition of church, and often it's around this word. And so we're coming into First uh, John, and if you missed last week, you gotta, you got to listen to the podcast. Julie did a phenomenal job, and she had this great phrase about the creation of joy. That's what the trajectory of the letter we're looking at is about the trajectory of joy. John says, I'm writing this to you to make our joy complete. So if that feels that like that creates some cognitive dissonance for you, creation of joy plus, then let's, let's uh, stay with this and, and delve in. Because I think there's a lot of joy to be found as we look at sin. And specifically the question, what do you do with it? So let's read John, uh, 1 John 1, 5. 2 to 2. It's on page 855. If you want to grab a chair Bible, let's look at this together and we'll read it and immerse ourselves in this ancient letter. First John 1 John 1.5. This is the message. We've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. and His word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God, we pray for help to understand this letter. Not written in our time, but to know how this applies to us now. Give us insight, give us understanding, and may we see you rightly. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So verse 5, this is the message. We've heard from him and declared to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So John's message is essentially about the character of God. This is the message, colon, God is. There is a God. And this God is light, which if you've been around the scripture, that is fairly obvious type of, um, a fairly obvious type of image. But what John's going to do here is he's, he's making this massive truth claim, God is light, and then everything that's going to come after this flows out of God being light. So to speak of God again in this way is really a well-known symbol Primarily two ways, really quickly in scripture we see this. The first way is illumination. That light, just as light provides illumination in dark places, this is an appropriate way to see God. That God reveals himself to people and shows them how to live. The second way is uh, an image of holiness. That light um, symbolizes the flawless perfection of God. And so the the comparison between good and evil, light and darkness, again, this is a familiar one. um, And it was currently in the, uh, the ancient world. So what does this mean and why does it matter? God is light, then, is to say there is a standard. There is such a thing as a moral authority in the universe. There is a light that shines and helps us separate right from wrong. And God shines in blazing holiness, blazing purity and beauty. God is light. Now, a number of years ago, when our oldest two kids were learning math, something interesting happened. We, we asked, I asked if I could tell the story, and they said, yeah, go for it. So our, our twins at the time were age five, and they were learning how to write numbers. And they were copying from a piece of paper of how to write out the numbers. And Elijah wrote the number three backwards. And so Amy intervened and said, oh, Elijah, there's actually a right way to write the three. And it has the lines going the other way. Eva leans in, pulls Elijah close and says, don't listen to her, Elijah. You can do it. There's no right way to do it. It's up to you how a three goes. And we've, we've retold that story many times, and we laugh because we now know there is a right way that a three goes. And, and so actually that led into a, a bit of an argument. And we said, 
No, Eva, there, there is one way that a three goes. If you don't do it that way, people won't know what you mean. She was going super philo- philosophical on the arbitrariness of symbols. And uh, it, it was like postmodern theory just as from a five-year-old. It was hard to track. But we, we had to, we had to uh, at some point, if we're going to have a common understanding, if we're going to communicate through letters and numbers... We must adhere that there is a right way for a three to go. And we, of course, know this is true about threes. And we also, we do know this to be true, or at least we want it to be true. That there is such a thing as right. Found it interesting the last couple weeks, the excitement over the Comey interview. The hope of truth coming to the surface for, uh, for a light to shine, kind of a national spotlight to, be, to, to shine on uh, possible deception. There were countdown clocks and news media leading up to the Comey interview. So there's an eagerness, an eagerness for there to be a light and for that light to shine on injustice and to expose untruth. We want that. We need that. Less convinced of that light being directed at my injustice. Want it shone, you know, quite a few places, just not this way. And so this is one of the sticky parts for our moment in history is that without an understanding of sin, without a doctrine of sin... A post-Christian society is blind to its own control, its own power, its own weakness. And the rejection of a notion of sin divides us because evil is always seen as out there and with them. And so a post-Christian society, ironically, is incredibly moralistic and religious as it argues over where the line is. The right blames the illegal immigrant and the left blames the uneducated working class or the unsophisticated rural folk. And so post-Christian society, robbed of a God who is light, who is a moral standard, then has to virtue signal to one another to convince one another that I am good. I am right. Through my language, you will know I am right and I'll surround people that mirror back to me that I am right and will affirm my goodness while casting truly pharisaical accusations and curses of outrage down on those who do not share my version of morality. This is what is known as call-out culture. So is call-out culture really a result from a culture that has given up the notion that God is light? And so we're left with our own flashlights kind of roaming around. Now, I think it's important to confront injustice, to name it. And we're going to talk about that this morning. But is this a result of kind of letting go of the, the idea that there is a God and there is a God who is light, who is holy? Any Alfred Hitchcock fans in the house? A few of us? Hitchcock was a cinematic legend, not just for his craft, but for his ability to make us see sin, 
to see the sin and the chaos that lurks underneath all of us. So, as you know, Hitchcock made films during a time where Britain and America had just fought a war against Nazism and were involved in a cold war against Stalinist communism. So evil was definitely seen as out there in foreign lands, in destructive ideologies. And yet Hitchcock's American films, uh, he, he had this way of pulling back the curtain to, for, for us to see our potential for evil, to see the horror within us, to see the sin and duplicity and deceit that lives not just out there but in here. And we need this kind of work in an ongoing way. We need that kind of work, particularly now where we're very fractured between left and right, conservatives and progressives, and where there's a feverish pointing out to the other side. But as Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And so First John, the passage we're at here, works like a Hitchcock film that helps reveal our own shadows. So let's see how, how it does this. Verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, do you notice that what's, what's being set up here is two contrasting ways, two ways to be in the world. Way one is seen in verses 6, 8, and 10. If you've got your Bible open there, you can see the pattern. Verses 6, 8, and 10 contrasting two different ways. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, and verse 10, uh, if we say that we, we have not sinned, period. And what differentiates the two different ways is what they do with sin, which we said this morning really is the question. What do you do with the ET when you have it? What do you do with sin? And so we've got to just step out for a second real quick, hopefully uh, quick sidebar on sin. What is sin? Again, a common word, but let's just do a quick overview. Two ways the Bible talks about sin, and uh, usually as lawlessness or faithlessness, and it uses a number of images, some of which you may be familiar with. So sin is missing a target, missing the mark, wandering from the path, straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is spiritual blindness and deafness. Sin can be both overstepping, the overstepping of a line, or the failure to reach it. This is transgression and shortcoming. The Bible talks of sin as a beast standing at the door to devour you. Sin is the breaking of a law. It is also the smearing of a relationship. 
It is vandalizing shalom, God's dream for every relationship in the world. Shalom the kid. No, we're not talking about vandalizing shalom the kid, uh, part of our congregation, but God's vision of harmony and connection. And sin is a rupture of relationship caused by rebellion and pride. And what's interesting is we see in Scripture that sin uh, is, though it connects and ruptures all kinds of relationships between me and creation, between me and a friend, between me and God, sin at its essence is a human violation a personal violation against a personal God. And this is why in Psalm 51, David's just committed adultery. If you don't know what that word means, kids, talk to your parents after. And this is in Psalm 51, his response to his adultery, his violation against Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You hear that? How David's realizing, actually, I've offended you, God. And so sin is then any act, thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its absence. That is a rupture of relationship. So what then is to be done? What do you do with the rupture, with the break, with the rebellion? What do you do? Again, that is the question. And the text is outlining, well, here are two ways. Here are two ways. Way one, live concealing. Bury that stuff deep. Figure out a pit under a shop literally or metaphorically, and put that stuff there. (laughs) Verse 6. This is one way to conceal. I can be intimate with God while being intimate with sin. That's that's the claim. Verse 8. I actually don't have sin in my life, so it's a minimizing of sin. Verse 10. I haven't sinned. Denial. And so few of us might not put it in those types of phrases, like I don't have any sin or I've never sinned. I, I, I would imagine very few of us might put it that way. So what does this actually look like? Well, I think it means to ignore, to deflect. I think that's related to call-out culture. Well, yeah, I know, but see, look how bad. It's to compare. At least I'm not like blah, blah, blah. It's to cover over. And you can do this with irreligion or with religion. You can do this with like blatant rebellion or more religious versions of it. Hey, Kelly, did you ever find your ET? Caring for you, pal. There's many ways to cover. And the outcome, John is saying, if you, if you live the concealing way, the outcome is, he says, deception. We lie, and, and, and that we actually deceive ourselves. You fake yourself out. And that you have pseudo-relationship. Because if people don't know the real you, they can't love the real you. And that's 
that's the, that's the hard thing. If I'm concealing, if I'm putting some sort of fake me out, then, then the me that is known and loved and accepted is fake, and I know it. And I'm caught. So that's way one. Way two is to live confessing. Verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light, this is living with transparency, being radically vulnerable, open. If we walk in the light, and verse 9, if we confess our sins. And those of us in recovery know this better than anyone, that you're only as sick as your secrets. And so confession just means putting it on the table. It means revealing. It means not covering. It means honesty. It means emptying my pockets in front of God and in front of you. And the outcome of this way, John says, is forgiveness and cleansing. The outcome of the first way is deception and fake relationship. The outcome of this way is authentic, real relationship marked by forgiveness and cleansing. And if you're anything like me, you can know this. You can know there's two ways. And that battle rages. It rages inside of what what is it going to be today, Lance? What is it going to be today in this moment? Concealing or confessing? And it rages, as we know, in the world. Reference the Comey interview. There is a desire, a hunger, a thirst for the way of confession to break into the world. I think of Philando Castile this week. News that there's no conviction. This is a man who was shot seven times in a car while following the instructions of a police officer. And so at this moment, America is hurting because there is a sense that the system is broken. Here's a list of no convictions. There's a desire for light to expose for many what feels like a corrupt system, a breakdown of justice. There's no peace without justice. And there's no justice without truth. So there's a hunger for truth. This happened on the same week where one of the largest evangelical denominations had a difficulty passing, at their big AGM, had difficulty passing a motion to denounce the alt-right and to call it racist. There was difficulty passing that motion as a large denomination to say, we, will, we, we resist racism in every form. Now, it eventually passed, but not easily. Same week. There's a hunger for truth. Well, that's our neighbors to the south. What about us? Especially this week on National Aboriginal Day on Wednesday. We're so early into the really infantile stages here of reconciliation. It's just, if you remember, it's 2008. Just 2008 where Stephen Harper issued an apology to survivors from residential schools. I mean, that, that is not that long ago. And, and because indigenous history was only mandated to be part of school curriculum in 2015 in response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action 2015. And because due to the Indian Act, 
uh, indigenous peoples had to get a permit to leave the reserve up until 1951. And because indigenous children were sent to residential schools up until 1996, that's the year I graduated high school, and, and because patients were dealt with at separate hospitals up into the 80s, indigenous peoples have been treated as out of sight and concealed and hidden. I read an article about prisons being the new residential schools. And you may know that overall, uh, admissions into prisons uh, for white people have declined in the last decade. But indigenous incarceration rates are surging, up 112% for women. So 36% of women and 25% of men sentenced to provincial and territorial custody in Canada are indigenous. And that is a group that makes up 4% of Canada's national population. And so in U.S., which is kind of the go-to comparison for... um, asymmetric jailing of minority people, black men, six times more likely to be in prison than white men. In Canada, indigenous people, 10%, 10 times higher than non-indigenous. That's higher than in South Africa at the height of apartheid. And in Saskatchewan, if you're indigenous, you're 33 times more likely to be incarcerated. There is a lot of work to do to repent from our nation's tendency to conceal and to move on. This is why we have Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but then also need calls to action to say, well, what's going to happen? What are we going to do with this? There's much work to do as a nation to move into confession. But... If Solzhenitsyn's right, if First John is right, then the, the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every human. And so we have some work to do, especially this year. Canada 150. This is a complex thing. Confederation is 150 years old, yes. But people and cultures have been going on a lot longer than 150 years, Yeah. In this place, and so our cities add, added the plus sign, which I think is a, a good move. 150 plus. We've got a lot of work to do, and I think part of that, maybe I'm speaking for myself, is closing the knowledge gap, learning Indigenous history, and it's doing things like this afternoon. A bunch of churches in the downtown east side have gotten together to throw a block party from 2 to 6 this afternoon on Princess between Hastings and Pender. So, yeah. And, uh, and it's a way to say, we see you, indigenous neighbors. We celebrate your culture. We're here as the church, listening and learning, and this afternoon, flipping burgers and hosting and celebrating culture. As there'll be dancers and uh, some elders sharing. So that's two to six. You're, you're welcome. And uh, uh, many of us from Artisan will be there participating. Now, one of the things I noticed as we wrap up here is the repeat of the refrain throughout First John, this little section. If we claim. If we claim. 
If we claim to be without sin, or if we claim to, to be walking in the light, but we're actually walking in the dark. If we claim, if we claim, if we claim. And that's really what it comes down to. In the face of guilt and shame, in the, in the face of very real sin, both personally and systemically, there is a better claim to be made than that of concealing. There's a better claim to be made than minimizing, blaming, or burying. There's a better claim to be made. And the, the claim is Christ. My dear children, verse 1 of chapter 2, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I think this is what links us and leads us into the creation of joy. How is that? God is light. Scripture says God is blazing and utterly alive in holiness. He's true truth. In God, there are no alternative facts to be found. God is light. And... God is an advocate. An advocate. Well, for who? For those who've done well? For the choir boys? For the good girls? No. For sinners. God is an advocate for oppressors and oppressed. God is an advocate for sinners. And God is atoning sacrifice. And John includes not just for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Now that is something to claim. That is something to claim. That's a huge claim to make. That God is alive with light. God is an advocate. And God makes atonement. And this is what creates joy. Felina Hurt says, Through activism we confront toxicity in our world. And through contemplation we confront it in ourselves. I think First John is trying to help us take all of our energy, all of our energy, and also direct it into contemplation. Or as Dorothy Sayers says, Lord, simple prayer, Lord, teach us to take our hearts and look them in the face, however difficult it may be. Now is a good time, I think, for confession. Not as a magic bullet, but... I think it's always a good time. Thumbs up, Sky. Yeah, I'm with you. Now is, a, now is a good time for confession. And I think today is a good day to move from concealing to confessing. And again, in the context of joy. Why? Because what's on the other end of confession? New relationship. Being known. Not having to carry the secret. Not having to continue to bury things. Like how good is that? Today is a good day to move into confession. And so I want to invite you to into that as I enter that myself this morning. You can write prayers. And the prayers of the people will collect those and pray them together. If you'd like someone from the prayer team to pray for you, you can go over there. We'll pray with you. Maybe it means taking out a friend or a spouse and, and just being simple as this, hey, I invited you out here, but part of this is me stepping into the light. I want you to know some stuff that's going on. In my, I trust you. If somebody does that with you, it'd be good maybe just to read this passage back to them after they do that. And remind them God is faithful and just, and he forgives you, your sin. 
and then have another pint after that to celebrate because that is really, really good news. And in that, we become a community of realized forgiveness. Realized forgiveness, practicing it, extending it to one another, receiving it, learning again, oh, I've got more to confess, learning more that there's so many gaps in my understanding of our neighbors, my own story, and on and on. But we become a community of realized forgiveness together. So I hope there's some joy in there for you. And it's not just the sin slide with the fire burning out with my sweet graphics. I hope that's not all that you take from this. It's an invitation into joy. And so as a way to start with that, I've got a prayer here for us to pray. If you'd like to pray, you can. If you'd rather not, uh, you don't need to. But let's share in these words together. And uh, in the middle, there'll be a little moment of silence. And uh, we'll continue on in our worship. Why don't we stand together and share in these words? Let's pray. Merciful God, in your gracious presence, we confess our sin. Christ is among us as our peace. We are people divided against ourselves as we cling to the values of a broken world. The profit and pleasures we pursue lay waste the land and pollute the seas. The fears and jealousies that we harbor set neighbor against neighbor and nation against nation. We abuse your good gifts of imagination and freedom, of intellect and reason, and turn them into bonds of oppression. Lord, have mercy upon us, heal and forgive us, Set us free to serve you in the world as agents of your reconciling love in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Glory to God.